Welcome to the Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM or in one of our beloved radio syndicate partners or in the Green Majority podcast. And the Green Majority is a platform for informed environmental dissent. And I am David Hostetter with Stefan Hostetter and Lauren Latour. And it is New Year's Day 2021, the first day of the new year. And uh, we are going to have, after some environmental news, we are going to have Stefan interview Mac- Matthew Klippenstein and Lauren interview Julia Levin. Well, yes, this is our hydrogen episode, our long-promised hydrogen episode. I think we promised it back in November of 2020, and we are finally delivering because Canada has now released its hydrogen strategy. And so... The, the way we approach these two interviews, my interview is a more of an overview. It was actually recorded before we knew what the strategy was entirely, just to get you to understand the terms, uh, you know, the difference between gray hydrogen, blue hydrogen, and green hydrogen, and, and the different ways that those work. And then Lauren's interview with Julia happened afterwards, and so it's actually about the nuts and bolts of the actual policy and really why we should be concerned about it. But... Hydrogen, as you can imagine, will still be in our minds. We'll have some more conversations about it in the future, but that's sort of the framing of those two pieces, which we'll get to very shortly. But first, some quick hits, some news. I would like to know what the promise of hydrogen... What is all all the hubbub about hydrogen? The, The short version is that hydrogen provides a way to get at some of the last 10% of emissions that would be very hard to electrify. So if you're trying to remove carbon from some percentage of the economy, you're not going to succeed at it uh, entirely through electrification. It's a, there's about maybe 10% of emissions that people think would be very, very hard to do with electric and that hydrogen can, can solve. From what I understand, it's like that's like the he- the heavy industry side of things, right, Stefan? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's it's like freight. It's it's you know it's these type of things that are much much bigger, uh, moving these things or, or yeah or, or heavy industry exactly. And for Canada specifically, as I think we'll hear in the interview with with Julie Levin, it's interesting to them. It's into Canada because it's a way to also potentially lengthen the life of the oil sands to try to try to pivot them. And I'm putting pivot in quotes uh, towards towards blue hydrogen rather than, which, you know, it has its own issues, which we'll get into. But I think that's sort of why the Canadian government has now gone all about it, because they sort of see it as a way to continue propping up our in, our fossil fuel industry, uh, but under the guise of green investment. Hydrogen, you're saying, is in some way necessary to entirely decarbonizing this industrial society. Green hydrogen would be, yes. Yeah, it's, it's necessary, but... What listeners will find as we go through these interviews is that, unfortunately, it seems that the way that Canada is going about implementing hydrogen energy within our system isn't actually going to push us that much closer towards decarbonization um, for for the reasons we'll, we'll get into later on. Yeah, and and one other fact I learned about hydrogen recently is that there's actually currently a bit of a race between China and the EU to start building what they're calling green steel, which is which is steel that is produced using green hydrogen uh, instead of instead of carbon intensive things, and so we're already seeing hydrogen begin to pick off some of those heavy industry players, and the question of who invests in it early enough to actually get there will start becoming a, a big question as we can move forward. From what I understand, Canada is one of the few countries that's earnestly investing in gray and blue hydrogen because everybody else is just going straight to green because they see that as making the most sense from a carbon standpoint. All right, great. Good hydrogen talk to kick off this new year. And uh, now I'm going to run through some environmental news highlights over the from the past few weeks to start things off. So in Singapore, lab-grown meat has now been approved for sale for the first time anywhere in the world. It is currently only lab-grown chicken that is being sold, and it is also currently more expensive than slaughtered chicken, but it could eventually become cheaper. Over in the UK, Boris Johnson's government has decided to no longer subsidize farmers purely for owning or renting land, but will begin requiring them to restore ecosystems, regenerate soil, and cut pesticides if they want to continue receiving the government grants. It is a huge change in UK farming policy and is one positive thing to come from Brexit, since EU farming policies are seen as terrible for the environment. 
The UK has also recently announced that they will be aiming to cut their carbon emissions by 68% below 1990 levels by 2030, but climate campaigners are warning that this isn't good enough. Indian farmers recently staged a hunger strike as they continue their massive protest of recent market deregulation in India, which will let corporations undercut crop prices and in turn greatly harm the incomes of farmers. Farm workers in Peru, meanwhile, recently gained a victory for their wages and working conditions because their fierce protests, during which police opened fire on them, have successfully overturned a pro corporate law to increase exports and cut taxes. Lakehead University in Thunder Bay, Ontario, has now become the sixth university in Canada to commit to divesting from fossil fuels. The group Fossil Free Lakehead has been campaigning towards this goal since 2013, but the university assures us that the pressure from the campaign was not the deciding factor. Rather, the decision was taken because the university aspires to be a sustainability leader, they said. The university's fossil fuel investments account currently for only 2% of its total investments, but it will still take until 2023 for the university to fully divest in order to protect their.、Um, Their profits. So, and now moving on to methane. E&D News reported recently that over 60 oil and gas companies have joined a partnership to start reporting methane emissions, a potent greenhouse gas that is collecting in greater and greater levels in the atmosphere. The companies in the agreement account for 30% of all oil and gas production worldwide and are aiming for a 45% decrease in methane emissions by 2025 and a 60 to 70% reduction by 2030. It is the first time that companies have committed to reducing methane emissions using a strict science based standard. The newsroom at Modern Diplomacy writes quote, Methane released directly into the atmosphere is a highly potent greenhouse gas with more than 80 times the warming power of carbon dioxide over a 20 year period. Actions to cut methane emissions can yield a near term reduction in the rate of warming, complementing efforts to decarbonize the world's energy and transport systems while also delivering air quality benefits. The methane partnership includes emissions from production, transportation, as well as processing and refining, which are areas not usually considered. Modern Diplomacy also reports that the UNEP and the European Commission are finishing up plans to build an international methane emissions observatory. There is also a new methane detection technology in the works at Los Alamos National Laboratory in the U.S. Which the scientists say could greatly reduce methane emissions by detecting leaks and could also possibly be used to detect the source of wildfires. Scientists in Siberia, however, have discovered that methane discharge is getting worse in the Arctic Ocean as large concentrations of methane are cracking open the permafrost. And now, briefly looking at CO2. While global emissions will end up having dropped between 4 to 7.5% over 2020 because of COVID 19, Atmospheric concentrations of CO2 are still rising and have, of course, reached a new record high, and we are all very likely still desiring to overdrive our terribly destructive economic engines in order to recover our consumption levels after a vaccine becomes widely available. And finally, a study in the journal Science is showing that many trees, rather than staying green for longer as temperatures increase, As common sense has, inspected, as it has expected, are actually shedding their leaves earlier in the season, meaning that we can't necessarily expect longer growing seasons or greater carbon sequestration from trees as the planet warms. Yeah, very quickly, because I know we don't have a lot of time.、Uh, Lakehead University, admit that the activists did something. That's my point. They obviously pushed you. It's the whole divestment movement isn't part of this. It is ridiculous to claim it took you this long to do it, and now you're like, oh, it's because we, we wanted to do this all along. No. The activists pushed you to do it. Give them some credit. No, it, that's exactly it. If, if, if it wasn't because of the students that are part of Divest Like Head, you're right. They would have divested back in 2010 when everybody was initially calling for it. There's literally no way it took you 10 years to make this decision on your own. Anyway.
besides the point. Um, at some point in the next few weeks, we're hoping to interview some students from Lakehead to sort of hear about their story a little bit more. Um, because something that at least I'm seeing increasingly um, is sort of a resurgence of the student-led divestment movement, which is really, really exciting. Um, because obviously a lot of progress was made when that campaign initially launched several years ago. But um, this new rebirth is sort of coming at a time when, when we are seeing shifts in the financial community um, from sort of investment groups that are that are um, uh, no longer choosing to invest in fossil fuel corporations to to big changes like, um, oh, heck, I can't remember who it was, but there's a specific really big insurance company that has something like 40% of, of, um, uh, of fossil fuel corporation sort of insurance. Um, a, what's an insurance bill called like an uh, insurance policies oh my gosh hi millennial talking here um, but it's a large insurance company that had 40 percent of insurance policies for large oil and, oil and gas corporations and they're going to be cutting ties with those with those companies soon so um yeah seeing seeing this sort of new injection of energy and effort being put into student divestment is exciting because I think it's coming at a time when they could potentially be really, really successful as a large movement. Um, so that is really cool to see and definitely a good news story to talk about, which is always an exciting thing on this show. I am here with Matthew Klippenstein, a clean tech engineering consultant. So thank you so much for coming back on the show. You're very welcome, Stefan. Thanks for having me. And so we are here because about a month ago on the show, we were t discussing the fact that we were starting to see hydrogen pop back into the world's uh, in the conversations. It, it, you know, hydrogen was, is this thing that has been mentioned previously. It, it, it clearly has had a couple booms already. And yet now we're seeing it being mentioned from anywhere from, you know, it's, it's being mentioned consistently as a way that Alberta could find it's sort of clean, cleaner way to move things. We're hearing about it, um, you know, from transport trucks, and, and you've been following this for a while. So maybe for, before I even get to the first question, maybe let's just set the standard of like, how long have you been sort of following the hydrogen beat and how do you come at it? Sure. So um, my career has spanned about 20 years. Maybe about 15 of those on and off have been around hydrogen and fuel cells. Uh, I did spend a couple of years uh, doing renewable energy consulting as well as a, a year and a half of some fantastic uh, uh, time with an environmental nonprofit, the Fraser Basin Council in BC, where I helped with plug-in electric vehicle infrastructure in apartment buildings and condos, a really fascinating subject. Uh, we, we had some really pioneering uh, policies here in Canada on that. So uh, I, I am lucky in that I do have direct experience with, uh, with uh, renewables. Uh, not, not with hydro, mind you, but the new renewables, uh, as well as on the EV side, as well as the uh, hydrogen fuel cell side. Uh, my wife was kind enough to let us buy a plug-in hybrid vehicle eight years ago uh, before we were able to or allowed to uh, charge at our apartment building. So um, I did kind of need the gas there for the first few years. Amazing. And, and so... Again, so you've been following this for a while. You sort of have experienced its ups and downs. So can you tell us why is hydrogen coming back into the, into the news so with such a vengeance uh, these days? Right. So I would, uh, I would give the credit to Greta Thunberg, really. And the reason I would ultimately go back to her is that uh, the climate strike movement uh, has forced governments, has, has created the public pressure to get governments to start thinking about net zero plans. Now, these things, you know, they're never perfect on the first go. We're still a long way from there. But for the first time, it got governments really saying, wow, there's the public uh, demand for a net zero, not like a, a minus 50% or minus 60% or even minus 80% emissions by 2050, but net zero. And that opened the gates for interest in hydrogen. And the reason is you can drop emissions by perhaps half, maybe two thirds, maybe in some places three quarters, just with uh, more renewables, uh, batteries, electrify everything, as they say. But there are some um, applications, some regions where you really do need hydrogen to complete the circle, if you will. And so really, ultimately, I'd, I'd, I'd give the credit back to Greta Thunberg. Uh, it is only because we are now talking about net zero plans that hydrogen is, is on the radar because you could get most of the way there without it. 
And so when we talk about hydrogen, it, it is important, I think, to also distinguish the fact that there are, I think, I don't even actually know the number of different conversations that about hydrogen in the number, because there are, there's sort of a color coding system is my understanding, mm-hmm. at least for some of it. So perhaps you can walk people through the, the types of hydrogen and, and which ones that we should be really paying attention to and maybe which ones maybe aren't as relevant or are maybe even a trap within the concept. Sure, yeah. So for whatever reason, the hydrogen community has created a color scheme for different types of hydrogen. Now, the type of hydrogen that, that is used today primarily with um, petrochemicals, with uh, upgrading oil, things like that, that's called gray hydrogen. So it's hydrogen that's pulled off natural gas, and the CO2 that you result, that, that results is allowed to exhaust to atmosphere. So that's, uh, that's high-intensity, high-carbon-intensity hydrogen. That is pretty much all the hydrogen that's made in the world today. Taking a step further, uh, you can get to what is called blue hydrogen, which is hydrogen where the CO2 is captured after the fact. Now, this does add some cost, but then you can perhaps capture about 90% of the CO2. Uh, Alberta, um, that great uh, boondoggle, if you will, that Stephen Harper had for his big uh, CO2 pipeline in Alberta. Well, we do have it, and uh, they got cheap natural gas in Alberta. So if you capture the CO2, there is actually a pipeline and a sink where where it can be put. So that's blue hydrogen. It's, it's um, I don't know, you might call it the, like, the, you know how the, how the Diet Coke still has a calorie or two? That's like, that's like the, the blue hydrogen. And then we get green hydrogen, which is hydrogen created from zero emission electricity from renewables, so wind and solar. There's a little bit of argument as to whether nuclear is allowed to be put in or whether it has its own color, which is just maddening, like three colors is enough really. Um, But basically, the idea is that uh, you use the electricity from wind and solar, you use it to split water, make hydrogen, and then subsequently, you uh, react the hydrogen to to release the heat or the energy that you need. Now, one of the complaints or one of the criticisms of hydrogen generally is that because it doesn't occur naturally in the world, you have to put energy in to extract it or draw it out from fossil sources. And so it is more efficient to use uh, to use electricity directly in those applications where you can. Uh, electricity batteries are fantastic in many, many applications. Um, at this stage, I think the ultimate goal is to get zero emission forms of fuel. So efficiency, efficiency will have its effect in the market share. But um, if you're talking about uh, batteries versus hydrogen is a little bit like saying, well, I prefer e-bikes, but I don't, don't like battery electric cars because battery electric cars are bigger, make more congestion and so forth. Um, so what I would say is the way to think about hydrogen is it's not quite a, a Robin to Batman thing where, where the Batman in this is, is renewables, is batteries. It's more like a, like a Dr. Evil and Mini-Me or, um, or like Ant-Man and then the tiny Ant-Man kind of a thing where it's a supporting cast member. It's not the, it's not the, the guy in the, in the, in the, uh, in the starting lineup. It's maybe the guy on the penalty kill or the power play specialist, something like that. But it is definitely a part of the team needed uh, for us to get to net zero. Okay. So, so you sort of see it as maybe the thing that's needed to get that last jump of the, of the finish line. So you don't see it sort of replacing say electric vehicles. So, I think the way to think about that is that electric vehicles or battery electric vehicles rather are already at scale. And so um, you made, uh, what, I think a couple million electric vehicles in the world last year. The overall worldwide production for fuel cells, all applications was about 10,000 vehicles worth. It's still a very nascent industry. Now, mind you, it's Canadian, so it's kind of sad that we have like zero on the roads in Canada today. But uh, China is going very hard on it. It's the next industry they want to master, having mastered solar and batteries already. Now, um, so yes, hydrogen allows us to complete the circle. It's a, it's a supporting cast member. And there will be applications, even in transport, where, um, where batteries aren't a good fit. Uh, aviation is one example. Shipping, uh, heavy-duty trucking, trains. Um, there is often an efficiency trade-off that we find uh, when it comes to sort of policy or political decisions. Uh, as one example, it is a lot uh, more efficient, or back in the day, say, it was more efficient to run trolley buses uh, instead of diesel, uh, diesel buses. However, uh, every neighborhood seems to not like trolley wires. And so in areas where you already had trolley wires, fantastic. But um, 
there are there's discussion about using trucks for example using catenary wires overhead wires to recharge trucks on the fly kind of and that is very elegant in on paper but in practice um, sometimes the most efficient approach isn't always the most practical um, I guess one other example might be that transmission lines we, we want to definitely increase transmission across Canada I'm not sure if it's super valuable to have a, a pan-Canadian grid because edge of BC is kind of far from edge of uh, Manitoba um, but we will definitely want to uh, increase and augment our infrastructure uh, if we bury the power lines, it might cost us three times as much, but maybe we only get 1% of the public blowback because various people, uh, you know, don't want uh, new power lines in their, in their visual landscape or something like that. So it's, right. it is, it is complicated, which is what makes life maddening, but also fun. Right. For sure. And so what would you say the main difference is between, so, say, the early 2000s when hydrogen was everywhere? It was the, oh, yeah. it was the thing that was going to save us all. I remember right. reading a Harper's article or something like that about how hydrogen cars and fuel cells were going to do this. Yeah. What do you see the difference between it then and sort of it now? Right. So I guess what I'd say is that every previous hype cycle for hydrogen, there have been a few, um, was based on hopes and dreams. Uh, without a plan or without public policy really being interested in it. Uh, right now, the difference is that governments are actually serious on net zero. Uh, and there, the, um, in addition to some transportation applications, hydrogen is pretty much the only way you're going to get high, high quality heat, very hot temperatures for like cement, steel making, things like that. And so, again, this is a case where instead of a whole bunch of like venture capital guys wanting to cash out with big, you know, IPOs and stuff like that, where it's all kind of a flash in the pan, then um, now it's actually real. Uh, one example we could use is that in the dot-com bubble 20 years ago, there were some companies, I think Webvan was one of them, which was like, you know, we'll, we'll do your shopping and we'll deliver your groceries, you know, within the next day. And that was ridiculous. It was a, it was a preposterous notion. However, uh, Amazon in the past 20 years has gradually started to do that. They are doing that now. And now we even have these food delivery companies, which, um, you know, promise your meal within an hour. Not at all happy about the labor practices and policies about that. However, that's, that's a very visible case where something which was a fantasy 20 years ago is actually a respectable reality. Now, um, hydrogen, I mean, I've, I've, I've lived through these stock bubbles before, so yeah, it's a bit of a stock bubble. But um, there is a real uh, value proposition, there's a real business case for the technology, and uh, it will, it will uh, grow at its, uh, at its natural pace, as opposed to being one of these airy-fairy promises. Cool. And so I, I want to go back to one other question I, about it, then I'll go to my last question. Because to me, the, it seems pretty obvious that going forward, the discussion going to, that will exist within environmental circles is going to be between green hydrogen and blue hydrogen, right? Gray hydrogen, yeah. I feel like everyone's going to discontinue. Like, that's, that's right. It's, we're not going to, like, no that's one right. in the environmental circle is going to care about it, so it's not important really from that concept. Right. Whereas, and green hydrogen, I think, will be sort of seen, I think, as maybe rightly so, it, a, a true effective way to 100%, you know, move towards electrifying everything and, and handling some of these more difficult pieces, right? right. Whereas right. blue hydrogen, I think, is going to be quite squarely in this conversation of, you know, yeah. is this a way to extend the life of our fossil fuel industry and in, in the heavy reliance on carbon capture and storage, or is it actually a true, truly blue. green idea, really? Right. And, and so yeah. can you get into the sort of that, what, like, what your take is on that, on that distinction? Very, yes, definitely. So blue hydrogen is in the crosshairs of this, uh, of this question. It's not quite as, actually, I guess, depending on, on, the, on the source of your green electricity, uh, it can be about as green or, or as few life cycle CO2 emissions as green hydrogen, this is blue hydrogen that is, but, uh, but there are extenuating circumstances. I don't think blue hydrogen will, be, will ever have full uh, respectability simply because it's the path for survival for fossil fuel companies. Uh, now, uh, to give a bit of a lay of the land, outside of North America, not inside North America, but outside of it, many of these uh, European uh, oil and gas companies have diversified. You know, some of them have divested. Uh, Dutch uh, Oil and Natural Gas renamed itself uh, to Orsted. Um, so these companies have done some transition work. 
a lot of the electric vehicle charging networks around the world are actually now owned by energy or oil and gas companies because that's how they can survive. That's their path for evolution. Uh, but yes, I think blue hydrogen will always struggle over the fact that it'll always be promoted by people in the fossil sector. Um, I do think there's a place for it, though, in that um, what we want is lower CO2 emissions. If you have a uh, if you have a fossil fuel company that survives but doesn't actually emit much CO2, I mean that's that's maybe not as golden as like a like a wind startup, but that's still a a, a great move forward. I suppose what I'd say is that on the on the blue hydrogen side, um, it it is part of the solution set, but it is probably eventually not going to be as it's not the dominant path. It's like a transition thing. Uh, I guess one other thing I would say, and this is more of a 10 to 20 year time frame, um, there is a way called pyrolysis where you could actually take the hydrogen off of the uh, off of the off the, off the fossil fuels, off the uh, hydrocarbons, and create soot instead, carbon black. Uh, carbon black is something which is used very commonly. Every like electronic wire you use, the tires, basically anything that's plasticky and black has carbon black in it, and so. Uh, one other path we might have is that uh, hydrogen gets produced in this manner, all the carbon winds up as a solid, uh, and you can use the hydrogen. And the only reason I bring this up is that we never want to constrain ourselves with the assumptions of today versus what there is tomorrow. Um, long ago, when I was starting out, there was this idea that, wow, 5 or 10% wind in the grid is going to destabilize things, and oh my god, and of course that proved to not be correct. If, if we do have access to hydrocarbons, as long as they don't get burnt, you know, if they, if they become carbon black or carbon fiber, uh, as long as they're not combusted, uh, if it's actually cheap to, to get the hydrogen, then uh, why not? Because it's not really going to take battery uh, or electricity market share. It's going to hit diesel demand or gasoline demand from the other direction. It's kind of a, kind of a pincher movement with one big claw and a little tiny thumb claw, you know, on the, on the side. Thank you for diving into that because I think that's going to be, you know, is going to be front and center, I think, as conversations move forward. For a decade at least, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so uh, last question, just as someone who's in this field and, and paying attention mm -hmm. to this, what should people be thinking about when they think about hydrogen? A most useful way to, to think of it is uh, to remind ourselves of the comment that we don't need a silver bullet of climate solutions, it'll be a silver buckshot. Increased use of hydrogen and fuel cells is never going to come at the expense of electricity or batteries. It's going to attack the diesel, uh, the fossil fuel consumption from the other side. Uh, and so there's no need to feel any threat from hydrogen. If we have, even if we have fossil fuel companies today who wind up becoming producers of low carbon hydrogen, that's still an evolution worth pursuing. I mean, Kodak got destroyed by digital cameras, but Fuji actually went into cosmetics because the technology is kind of similar and they even have one of these freaking coronavirus uh, um, vaccines out in japan in, in tests right so um dinosaurs can evolve uh, we do need to get rid of carbon carbon dioxide rather emissions and um, hydrogen is one more quiver or one more arrow in the quiver of solutions and um, yeah that's that's pretty much that well, amazing. Thank you so much, uh, Matthew Klippenstein, the Clean Tech Engineering Consultant. If you want to find out more about your work, where can they find out? Uh, sure. I guess they can look me on at Twitter. Um, I'm at Electroncom. Um, that's Electron, like the, like the subatomic particle, C-O-M-M. -M. Uh, I don't do PR. A lot of people get confused with that. I do engineering communications, technical writing, that kind of stuff. Um, I also write periodically for the National Observer. So, uh, you know, if you're another uh, reader of, uh, you know, if you follow Emma and so forth, you can occasionally see me editorializing or other commentary pages there, musing on different aspects of, uh, you know, how we can most effectively get through this energy transition. Amazing. Thank you so much, Matthew, and have a wonderful day. You're so welcome. You too. This is Lauren Latour. I am joined today by uh, Julia Levin, the Climate and Energy Program Manager at Environmental Defense. Thank you so much for joining us today, Julia. I really appreciate you, appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule. Thanks for having me, Lauren. So Julia and I are going to talk a little bit about Canada's hydrogen strategy today, which is a super exciting topic. It was, it was a pretty big thing to hit Canadian newsstands a couple weeks ago, so we feel like it's, it's good to devote some time to it. Um, right off the bat, Julia, there is 
Um, I think I think I just want to start off with some definitions just to make things really clear for, for listeners who might be confused because there's a lot of different types of hydrogen that we're sort of becoming aware of now and there's some color coding and some classification. So if you could just take a few minutes and just break that down for our listeners so everybody knows. So we're all starting off on a level playing field as listeners. Yeah, I think that's a really important place to start. And maybe I'll just start by saying that hydrogen, it's not like a fossil fuel. It's not, uh, it doesn't produce energy on its own. It's an energy carrier. It can store and deliver usable energy. Um, And the advantage is that when you burn it at the final point, when you use the hydrogen, it emits water. It's very clean burning. There's no emissions at the the end. Um, But in some ways you can kind of think of it like electricity. If your electricity comes from renewables, from solar, you have a really clean electrical grid. But if your electricity comes from coal, then you have a very carbon intensive. There's a lot of carbon pollution associated with your grid. Hydrogen is the same. So we can have hydrogen that's produced from renewable energy. And so what that means is like water. We, We use renewable energy to split water and get hydrogen because hydrogen, though it's the most common element, it's not found it's not found on its, on its own in nature. You have, to, you have to produce it from something else. Um, or we can produce hydrogen from, from natural gas, from methane, where we take steam and we split methane and it produces hydrogen and it produces a lot of carbon pollution. Um, so when we talk about the different forms of hydrogen, we talk about renewable or fossil. And I think that's the clearest way to distinguish between the forms of hydrogen. But industry and increasingly governments like to bring in more color codes. So they're talking about gray and blue and green. And so the green, okay, the green is using renewable, um, re- renewables to split, split water into hydrogen. We're all on board there. But this use of blue or gray, so what, what that is, is most of the hydrogen that's produced today is, is gray, which means we're using, we're, again, we're using natural gas, methane, to make hydrogen and creating a ton, a ton of emissions in that process. The difference in blue is that, at least in theory, the, the idea behind blue is that we're gonna, we're gonna capture those emissions when we split natural gas so that they're not released into the atmosphere. Um, blue is used to make it sound all nice and like a lovely thing. So it's an, a term that the industry has created to make it more palatable, but it's basically gray with the hope that maybe we can capture those, those emissions. Um, so that, yeah, that's the framing. I just wanted to start this off on. That's awesome. Thank you so much. Um, I really appreciate that. I know that can be, even, even for me, somebody who, who thinks about this stuff a lot of the time, it can be really confusing. Um, the color codes are an unhelpful system. I really do hope we, we ditch it going forward. Um, because I know at times I've even heard stuff like pink hydrogen. And it's like, mm-hmm. and I know that that's tangentially related to nuclear, but it's like, I don't know. It, it doesn't seem like the most helpful system. Um, yeah. Anyway, so moving on, um, kind of bouncing off of that, what is sort of the promise that hydrogen holds as kind of an energy source? Why was this strategy so anticipated? I sort of joked at the top that it was like a big news story. I know it wasn't a big news story, but it was still a really anticipated plan. There was a lot of talk about it in the lead up. There was a lot of, um, initially, a lot of different organizations and bodies had submitted sort of, um, I think it might've been during like the terms of reference stage, but people sort of submitted reviews um, in the early stages. So why was it that people were anticipating this hydrogen strategy so much? Yeah, it, it's funny. I mean, a year ago, I ha- would not have assumed I would ever be here talking to you about hydrogen. Hydrogen kind of had like a heyday a couple decades ago. And then we had the pandemic and the pandemics accelerated a lot of, a lot of the, a lot of the tendencies in oil and gas. We've seen a faster transition away from oil and gas. And then suddenly seemingly out of nowhere, there's this hydrogen hype. I've seen it described as a decarbonization darling du jour. Like, like out of nowhere, hydrogen has become the thing. So we should be questioning why. And the real reason why is that the oil and gas industry, like I said, they see the writing on the wall. They know the world is transitioning away from oil and gas. They do not. They, do, they want, I mean, that transition means if they, if they stay in the sector they are, they lose. So they've been trying desperately to create new markets for their product, and hydrogen is that is that new market. So the reason we have a hydrogen hype is because of the oil and gas sector looking for ways to stay relevant. 
um, and, and governments then bind in. And so part of that is like creating, creating words like blue hydrogen, making themselves seem like the solution to our decarbonization um, questions and, and search for pathways. Um, and, and, and part of that also is just like grossly exaggerating the potential role of hydrogen more broadly to in, in, in kind of um, in tomorrow's energy systems. Because even the, they're okay even with government saying, actually, we're going to focus on renewable hydrogen in 2040, 2050, because in the meantime, they get to expand and they get to, and they get to push that transition down the line. Okay, but said all that, so I come into this conversation very, from a very skeptical place, but said all that, renewable hydrogen can play a key role. So we know that to decarbonize our economies to... Um, to transition in a way that, that we need to transition. The key elements are energy efficiency and electrification. So we have to electrify everything and we have to, yes, conserve energy as much as possible everywhere we can. But there's some small, like there's a small percentage of, of our economies which, we, which are really hard, at least right now, to electrify. Um, and those are things like, like uh, the production of cement and steel, like long, like heavy duty, long transport, like maybe things like shipping. Um, and that's where something like hydrogen, renewably produced hydrogen could play a key role in, in, in decarbonizing those sectors. So there's, part, there's, so there's two parts of this hydrogen hype. I think the main reason is what I've been saying before, but there is a critical role for renewable hydrogen to play in very niche limited applications. Awesome. Thank you so much for laying that all out for us. That was fantastic. Um, okay, so I, I guess now it's it, we can dig into sort of the actual strategy itself at a, at a high level because we don't have all the time in the world. Um, yeah, can you sort of summarize for us like the intentions of the plan and, and, and what we find in it? Yeah. Um, so with this plan, like I've said, the government had an opportunity to either like build its place as a global leader in an emerging renewable hydrogen sector, which would have been a great thing for Canada to do. We are, we have like competitive advantages with renewable energy that would have placed us well for that, to position ourselves as a, as a leader and take an opportunity to build the renewable hydrogen sector. Instead, we use, the strategy is a smokescreen to, for continued production of natural gas in the country. It locks us into natural gas production as absolutely what it does. Um, that leaves us out of touch with like European countries, especially like Germany and Spain, who are really focusing on renewable hydrogen and are looking how they have money set aside to import renewable hydrogen. So again, missing, missing an important market opportunity. Um, the framing is, a, is that we're going to focus on blue now, and then we're going to transition to green. But there's so many problems with that. First, like I was saying, blue hydrogen is contingent on a technology to capture that carbon before it gets released into the atmosphere. This thing that we often hear called carbon capture and storage, CCS. Um, and the way oil and gas industry talks about CCS, you think it's a done deal. You think it's ready to go commercial at a commercial scale. And that's just, that's just not true. Um, we have a few demonstration plants in Canada, but they're demonstration plants and it's prohibitively expensive um, and just, it's just, we it still would need massive investments of private and public dollars. And we don't know that it would ever be able to be used at the scale. Actually, we're pretty sure that it would never be able to be used at a scale to actually allow any kind of, um, to sustain the natural gas sector. And a good, we can look at coal because carbon capture and uh, storage for coal has been talked about for even longer. And so for a decade, there was this promise of carbon capture and storage coming in to clean coal, and it never went anywhere. That technology has never gone anywhere. And all it's done is allow the coal sector to continue to produce dirty coal for decades past where they would have with, without this promise of this like unicorn fairy tale technology. Um, so that's what this strategy doubles down on, exactly those things. It also just ignores the, the economics of it. it. It points to kind of older data that says, well, right, right now, of course, gray it, hydrogen production is very cheap because you're just letting all that carbon pollution 
go off into that in the sphere. Um, but it, it points to this old analysis that says that, that even with CCS, that's still going to be cheaper and because CCS is expensive, uh, that's still going to be cheaper than green. But the latest analysis all shows that within the next, some analysis says within the next three to four years, anywhere to like five to seven years, green is going to be cheaper than unabated, that means just the gray hydrogen, even without CCS. Um, and that, that, what we've seen, and the reason why that is, is first the like rapidly plummeting costs of renewable energy production. Solar has become 90% cheaper over the last decade, and it's you know, just blown by all of the project, projections of how, how quickly that price would come down. And the cost of the technology um, that splits the, the, it's a process to split the water using electricity that's called electrolysis. And the technology behind that has got like gotten cheaper by half as well, even, even though it's at the beginning um, of, of the investments in, in this field. So pointing to like outdated, not realistic cost comparisons to lock us into a sector that we know we need to be winding down. That's basically what this does. I'll say one good thing about this strategy. It does bring in a really important focus on the potential of hydrogen, and this is where I'd say renewable hydrogen, not, not fossil hydrogen, um, to help indigenous and remote communities transition away from diesel. And it brings in a lot of attention to increased uh, partnership around that conversation. So that, that's a good thing. So the hydrogen, if we just replace renewable, with fossil, um, if we just replace the opposite, replace fossil with renewable, it could it could be a good hydrogen strategy, um, but but a strategy that locks us down into a sector that we need to we need to move away from just makes no sense. Of course, how disheartening. Um, so how does how does this strategy? Do we know how it fits in with Canada's sort of like recently um, debuted federal climate plan? Um, and does it actually, does the hydrogen plan give us a projected amount of greenhouse gases that could be like saved or, or prevented? Should this plan or should this strategy sort of be followed to the letter? Is that something that it, that it offers us? Yeah, so um, the two are, inter so the hydrogen strategy says that it could, if we do all these things, um, we could, we could reduce our mission levels by 45 megatons, which, which sounds like a lot, is a lot. Um, and so I, I think that 45 megatons is included in the climate plan's modeling. There are some concerns about the modeling that the climate plan uses um, and how, how consistent they are with, with the steps laid out. Um, I think one of where the two come together, well, two things I'll say. The first is that the hydrogen strategy and the climate plan, both of them fail to tackle the most important source of emissions, which is the oil and gas sector, in a meaningful way. I mean, we know we need to end the, end the use of fossil, the production of fossil fuels in this country by 2040. Like, we have to start winding the sector down. Um, but the government in both of these two, in the strategy and in the climate plan, they've started moving back from the idea of a transition, which is actually something that over the last month I've become increasingly like kind of definitely worried, concerned, but also a bit scared about a year ago, we had a commitment to a just transition strategy. Now when we ask the ministers, they don't even like to use the word just transition. In neither, like the hydrogen strategy is being used as a way to justify increasing production in the climate plan. Nothing is, there's no acknowledgement of needing to, to to talk about the managed decline so that we can get to where we need to be in terms of phasing out production. Um, so that's, I mean, that doesn't quite answer your question, but that's just a real concern that's been top of mind that both of these have made me increasingly nervous about. And just, it's just becoming obvious that the federal government is not actually serious about any, any actual um, eliminating of production. So that's where, so that 45 megatons might sound a lot, but that's what they like to do, these incremental, you know, we can kind of reduce emissions a bit in the sector, but the oil and gas sector is responsible for 
28% of our emissions, that's 200 megatons. It's the fastest growing source of emissions. So when you put 45 megatons in that context, this is like trying to put out a fire with like your backyard tube, uh, hose, whatever they're called. It, it's, just, it's, just, it's just not, it's not gonna get us there. No. And um, is this, the, the way this strategy was rolled out, is there room to kind of go back to the, like not the drawing board, but is, is there room for sort of intervention and sort of an increase of ambition? Were that to be demanded or is it, is it kind of a done deal at this point? Yeah, it's, it's not a done deal. So yes, the strategy has been laid out. There's been a lot of oil and gas and industry lobbying to put it where it is. So there's a lot of pressure on the government to have created the plan it did. Um, but it's just a strategy. Part of the strategy is putting together a commitment to convening a working group to kind of help deliver this strategy. There's a lot of room um, for influence from the provinces. A bunch of this, the things recommended in the strategy are the provincial level. So now, yeah, it's, it's definitely, there's definitely a lot of room and need for public pressure to say, hey, no, this is not where we need to be going. Um, and I think also because for probably lots of like, probably wherever you're listening, your MP doesn't know much about hydrogen. This is something that you can actually help educate decision makers on and tie to that larger conversation about, hey, I want honest conversations about decarbonization pathways in Canada and that oil and gas is not part of a decarbonization pathway. Um, one key thing I haven't mentioned yet, and so, so the strategy is not law, it's not a regulation, but one thing it's gonna start to, to, to like it's, it's gonna, the, the, the fastest, the first part of the strategy that will get operationalized is um, government funding. So the strategy says that to build a hydrogen sector in Canada, we need an investment of about five to seven billion dollars. And doesn't say it acknowledges that it has to come from private and public partners, but doesn't acknowledge the breakdown. We've seen, we saw it in the climate plan. So this is another place where the two are closely linked. We saw in the climate plan a new fund being created for low carbon fuels. It's called. It's one point five billion dollars, and a lot of that will go to hydrogen. Um, so one area where we need to put a lot of pressure and continue putting pressure is that no government support can go to the oil and gas sector. So that means no government support should go to blue hydrogen. That is a fossil fuel subsidy. We have a commitment to, fuel, to phase out, to eliminate our fossil fuel subsidies. People, voters across this country have repeatedly said in polls and in elections that they don't want fossil fuel subsidies. Uh, Minister Wilkinson has decided that he gets to define what subsidies are and that any money to oil and gas that's used for emissions reductions isn't a subsidy. That's not the internationally agreed upon definition. Um, he doesn't get to make up his own de definitions. He is, should be accountable to people like you and you can keep him account, keep hounding him on this. In the last month, he's had to answer this question like three, four times per week. Let's keep hounding him on, on this. I love that. Yeah, no, I think it was Wilkinson who said recently, he's like, oh, there are a bunch of different definitions for subsidy. It's really hard for me to say for sure. And it's, come on, come on, John, you can do better than that. Um, so what would you say for listeners who are interested? You said like, for instance, like a lot of MPs don't actually have much knowledge when it comes to hydrogen. Um, are there, I don't want to say easy because activism is never easy, but like, are there, are there defined ways that you think you could, you could maybe like, tell listeners how they could plug into this issue if this is something they care about and want to want to work on? Yeah, I think, I mean, this, this strategy just landed on our desks. Um, so we're going to, I think you're going to see a lot of organizations talking more about hydrogen in, in the new year. Um, for example, there were, there were 27 organizations that signed a letter before the strategy uh, went live to Minister O'Regan, who's the Minister of Natural uh, Resources and responsible for the strategy. Um, so you're going to see different like things through if you follow organizations that that they like maybe petitions. Um, but there's the things that you can always do. Maybe in your community there there is um, there's some grassroots organizing around this that you could be part of. Maybe it's this is all over the media. Media is super interested in this, so maybe you want to write a letter to the editor or respond to particularly terrible piece of reporting that put that presents blue hydrogen as a climate 
um, savior when that's absolutely not what it is. Um, definitely, I definitely reach out to both your MPPs and your MPP, sorry, both your MPs and your MPP or MLA, because provinces are also, especially Ontario and Alberta, um, are also coming out with their own really terrible hydrogen strategies. So let's put some pressure on the provincial counterparts as well. Um, I think I think I'll, I think there's you will start to hear more about this in in the new year. So keep informed. One of the things that I like to tell people is really for some reason, even in with our friends, with our neighbors, we still don't talk about climate change enough. We need to. We need to help each other actually understand this because if you're only paying a little bit of attention, and maybe lots of people in in your listeners' lives are just paying a little bit of attention, this might sound like a really great thing that the government is doing. And people are really buying into this greenwashing that our federal uh, government is doing. So just help everyone in your community understand that we are not having the ambitious conversations that the government is pretending that we are. Well, thank you so much for having this conversation with us today. I really, really appreciate you're so brilliant. You know this stuff so well, and you make it so easily digestible for us to understand. So I really, really appreciate you chatting with us, even just for 20 minutes. I know we, we've leaned on you quite heavily as a show the last few months. So, so thanks for I, joining us again. I've really enjoyed being part of these conversations, um, especially this, this one around hydrogen. And I hope you'll have me back in the new year to continue some of these. Absolutely. I'm sure it'll just be a matter of weeks before I'm sending a new email to your inbox. Um, is there anywhere online that listeners can find you if they want to hear more from either yourself or environmental defense? Yeah, um, we environmental defense is on all the platforms at Enviro Defense. And we definitely have some resources on hydrogen coming up there. And folks can find me on Twitter at um, lev underscore JF. Should come up with something that's a little bit more. <laughs> a little easier to understand. No, that's great. Well, uh, we're really bad at social media ourselves, but, but I'll try to like make sure your handle is in there uh, when, we, when we post the episode. Um, but yeah, thanks so much again. I'll, I'll let you go for the day. Uh, that was Julia Levin uh, with Environmental Defense chatting with us about hydrogen. Thanks so much.